Welcome to the Fellow Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Lesperance. Listen in as I host humble discussions exploring the diverse expressions of Christian spirituality, tradition, and beyond. Enjoy, and safe traveling. Hello, my fellow travelers. Thanks for listening in. I've really appreciated all your support. If you'd like to support me further, consider becoming a patron on my Patreon. Simply go to patreon.com forward slash morning sun underscore fellow traveler or click the link in the show notes. Thank you so much. I love you and safe traveling. All right. Welcome back, everybody, again to the fellow traveler. Here I have really cool guests. Um, a rather, I don't know, up and coming influencer, I guess, in the world of traditional Roman Catholicism, uh, the religious hippie, Amber Schneider. Is that right? Hi. Cool. How's it going, Amber? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. And where are you zooming in from? I'm zooming in from Chicago. Wow. Chicago. (laughs) Chicago. Chicago has quite a bit of, uh, I'm I'm actually in Massachusetts, so. Okay. Quite a distance away, but. uh, yeah, like 10-hour drive or something like that. No, maybe more, maybe 14-hour drive. I don't know. I've always wanted to go to Chicago. In fact, um, one of my favorite my favorite musician of all time is Sufjan Stevens. And I'm oh, sure yeah. you've heard the song Chicago by mm-hmm. Sufjan Stevens. Oh, my goodness. He's, it's such a good song. It is such a good song. That whole album about Illinois. Um, yeah, anyway, <laughs> I could geek about that. But uh, yeah, welcome uh, I'm so glad you, I got to talk to you. Like like I mentioned to you, I, you know, it's interesting. My relationship to Catholicism is very interesting because my father and his family are Catholic and my mame and Pepe, French Can- French Canadian Catholics. So Oh, me too. Yeah, my last name is L'Esperance, so it's French. Um, French Canadian Catholics and my mame and Pepe were very devout. And my mame wanted to actually become a nun and my pepe wanted to be a priest um but they felt called to get married and because they decided not to go into the vocations they felt it was their their duty to have as many children as possible <laughs> so they had so they had 15 children wow god bless my, them. my dad's the second oldest of 15 children they've they've now passed away um i think my my meme passed away about eight years ago now my pepe actually just uh we just had his 20th anniversary since he passed away but um but it's crazy like catholicism is is kind of like steep in my spiritual heritage even though my my father kind of um found more of a a different kind of expression and freedom within um the charismatic movement that which was huge in the 70s and you know there's the new, the new movie the jesus movement have you have you seen it yet 
I haven't. No, I haven't seen it either, but I, everybody's talking about it. (laughs) And it's funny because like growing up, I heard about that all the time. Like my, uh, my pastor growing up was involved with the Jesus movement and all the hippies, the action, the the real hippies, you know, that um, a lot of them converted in mass, you know, um, to evangelicalism, to Catholicism, to all different forms of Christianity. But there's something about it. It's kind of funny because I was thinking about um, your name, the religious hippie, you know, <laughs> and how, yeah, and how um, I don't know. I think it's kind of ironic because you're uh, you're a, a traditional Catholic, uh, rather traditional person. So it seems like why is she a hippie? <laughs> but then I was I was curious. Do you want to speak to why you chose that name? Yeah, I mean, Title? it was supposed to be a buffer name. To be honest, it wasn't supposed to be the original name. It started out as a nickname actually when I was growing up because as a teenager I was very, I was a wild child. You know, I just I loved bell bottoms. I dressed like a hippie. I had crazy hair, and so my friends basically nicknamed me hippie. Like they were just like you know they'd call me hip for short. They call me hippie. Oh, and I then, see. Um, when I came back into my faith, they were like, well, now you're like the religious hippie. Um, <laughs> That's funny. And I'm still like very much in, into um, certain things like uh, homeopathic medicine, like holistic mm. medicine, not like crystals or anything like that. You know, <clears throat> yeah, not new agey stuff, but yeah, but like the nice actual about. like growing herbs and stuff to heal your body type thing. Like, sure. Yeah, that type of stuff. So you're kind of earthy, crunchy. Okay, I see where the hippie comes from because I'm thinking yeah. to myself, a traditional Catholic as a hippie, that's kind of a misnomer. It doesn't make but sense. But the people don't really see that crunchy side yeah. of me on social uh-huh. media because I feel like if you were to become that, like that would be your persona on social media. Like you're either Catholic yeah. or you're a part of the crunchy community. You can't <clears> be both. You're crunchy um, Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's cool. I've tried and it's just like people either want you to be one or the other. And I'm just like, well, all right. <laughs> can I be both? Yeah, you know, that is really interesting because, you know, you have um, hippies back in the day, they were very countercultural, they're against establishments, they're against institutions. They were very much about like, freedom of expression. And, you know, it is interesting that balance between individualism and collectivism, right? It's like, it's like, I don't think any I don't think humans can escape the fact that we are a part of groups, you know, and I think our, our society is moving, has been moving in that direction for a long time. I mean, probably since the enlightenment, the Renaissance and industrial revolution, you have the, the rise of capitalism and materialism. You have all this individualism. And now what's that? Industrialism. Industrialism. Yeah. Industrialization um, led to then like, Oh, you can buy this to meet all your needs, you know, and find fulfillment and buying things and, whatnot so like it's become very individualistic um but we can't really escape it right it's like interesting so but what i did find as i kind of reflected on what does the religious hippie uh mean you know as a traditional catholic i was kind of thinking there is a counter countercultural aspect of you because the culture is moving in especially your generation gen z right are you gen z yeah Yeah, you're gen Gen z Z. right on the cusp (laughs) i can't i can't keep track of all these <laughs> i'm like on the cusp of millennial so i'm somewhere kind of in the middle <laughs> well i'm like yeah i'm at the tail end of millennial so it is a weird place to be i'm in my late 20s i'll be 30 this year actually it's pretty wild oh, wow, yeah. but yeah um i was thinking about how you're countercultural in that um 
you know, you're moving in more of a traditional mode and direction and lifestyle versus the secular post-Christian society that is basically your, um, what is basically your generation and a lot of, large part my generation too. But yeah, it's really, it's really fascinating. Um, anyway, welcome again to the fellow traveler. Glad to have you from Chicago. <laughs> Thank you. Um, thanks for taking your time to chat with me. I'm really interested in hearing your your thoughts. As I was saying, like, yeah, I have a big background in, um, I'm not big background, just like uh, spiritual heritage in my family of Catholicism, Roman Catholicism from the French Canadians who immigrated to America. And, but a lot of the Catholics that I've interacted with in the past few years have been kind of more on the fringe, ecumenical um, and independent progressive Catholics, which I think there's a lot of good things that they're highlighting in terms of like social justice, really highlighting, they, one of the things they always say is the Catholic social teachings is the best kept secret. Yeah. Which I think is true. A lot of people, um, it's tough to find that balance of like uh, social justice versus you know what is like what is um i don't know doing social justice in the in a good way you know and um but yeah anyway why don't we start out talking about um your spiritual heritage this kind of concept that um it's what you were born into and what did that um tradition look like what experiences you have in that and and um were there any experiences as you go through your story that you had, whether mystical or mundane, that kind of drew you back to the faith and back to the church in that sense? Yeah, I, so growing up, I was raised Catholic. Um, I was baptized in the Novus Ordo, but uh, my dad raised us in the traditional Latin mass. And for those who don't know, the traditional Latin mass is um, just an older tradition of the mass, basically how we would have done it thousands of years ago. And so that's the mass that he was raised in. And he really wanted us to have the same upbringing and faith that he did when he was a child. So I got my first Holy Communion and my confirmation at St. John Cantius. If you guys Google St. John Cantius in Chicago, it's this beautiful church. It's gorgeous. Um, and that's my current parish right now. But I was born and raised, you know, a cradle Catholic. I went through um, all of the, I guess, all the classes and stuff you had to as a Catholic, but I didn't really retain any of the information. And honestly, it didn't really interest me as a kid. I was more interested in playing with my friends after mass and, you know, going to the mall and stuff like that. So my faith wasn't really a big part of my life when I became like a preteen and a teen. But when I was a kid, you know, I was a really, I was really devout. I tried to be at least, um, I would pray my rosary by myself and I would, um, just kind of like sit in my room and talk to God. Like I, I, you know, just like what kids do. But as I got older, you know, the world kind of got to me and, uh, the friends I had weren't the best. They were pretty worldly, despite the fact that they also had traditional Catholic upbringings. Um, so when I was about 11, after my confirmation, I ended up falling away from the faith because of um, there's some crazy stuff going on in the church and it, it kind of triggered a lot of Catholics to, to leave. Um, we all kind of left and cause we didn't know how to handle it. And, uh, my family was one of those families. 
So I basically for eight years just kind of wandered. I was a part of pretty like not bad groups, but just like groups that didn't have the best morals, you know, um, they drank, they smoked, they would have sex all the time. It just wasn't a good vibe. And I never stooped to that level, but which I'm very surprised because it was literally all around me. And, you know, the people we surround ourselves with, um, are really the people that we kind of become. And so I was surprised that I was preserved from all of that. It doesn't mean I didn't struggle with certain things I did, but, um, I never did drugs or smoked or drank or anything. Um, cause I saw what it kind of did to my friends and I realized, you know, I didn't want that for myself. Um, and then I kind of just went around like that for years, you know, eight years, almost a decade from the time I was 11 until I was like 18 or 19. I, I just kind of wandered. And as time went on, like there was kind of this hole inside, you know, you, you just kind of feel empty. You feel like there's something missing. And I just couldn't figure out what that was. Cause like, I was fairly popular in high school. I had a lot of friends. I went out on the weekends, you know, um, it's not like I was actually lonely cause there were people around me constantly. And it's not like, you know, I didn't have friends. I did, but they weren't good friends. They kind of walked all over me and used me for like rides and stuff. You know, they're like, Oh, can you drive me here? Hey, I'm drunk. Can you come pick me up? You know? Um, so they weren't the best of friends, which is kind of hard because, you know, you give yourself to other people, you know, because you want to be appreciated and they're just like, okay, thanks. Bye. <laughs> you know? Um, so I was kind of in that position for quite a while. I was in a pretty bad relationship too, which didn't help at all. And I kind of like just fell into this pit of like depression and anxiety. I really struggled with self-harm and um, a bunch of just really just really bad emotional issues um I had an eating disorder it just wasn't good and I think nearing the end of that um phase in my life I was looking for something deeper I wasn't just looking to go shopping on you know a Saturday to fill the hole I wasn't just looking to go hang out with friends to you know make me feel like I'm a part of something um I started looking spiritually for something more and I remember specifically when that kind of happened, this whole kind of turnaround started happening in my life. I uh, started, well, I didn't start. I was in bed basically. And I realized that I, well, I really didn't get out of bed much that week because it was just a really rough week. And I remember seeing that it was a Sunday. And I remember on Sundays, my parents and I would go to church with my sister, like we would all go for breakfast afterwards. And I felt really happy in those moments. And it kind of uh, brought back like this so, like type of feeling of um, nostalgia almost. So I was really excited to be able to um, get back kind of into that like mindset sort of of being a kid again. And so what I ended up doing was because it was Sunday, I was like, well, you know, I could go to church. I don't know of any real churches near me that I would go to, but there was a childhood childhood church of mine down the street that I decided to go to. And I ended up going and I kind of sat in the back and I just kind of like the entire time I just felt like I was, didn't belong there. You know, I was kind of like this outcast and I felt like everybody was judging me and they knew that I had been away for so long and there was just a lot of stuff going through my head, but, you know, at the end of all of that, um, 
I mean, I wasn't really even paying attention during mass at that point, but then the, um, consecration happened. And for people who don't know what that is, um, in cat in Catholicism, we have the mass, um, and it's a re presentation of Jesus's sacrifice on Calvary. It's not re crucifying him or anything like that. It's just a representation of it and it's um, something happens called transubstantiation which means um, the substance changes and so even though it might look like uh, bread and wine it's actually become the true body blood soul and divinity of Jesus Christ so as Catholics that is what we believe and as the priest uh, did the consecration um, they raised the host and which is the bread and that's when the miracle takes place. And I just remember kind of like everything becoming quiet, uh, almost like time kind of stopped. All the thoughts in my head stopped too. And I looked up and I I kind of locked eyes with Jesus, so to speak. And I felt him kind of like speak into my heart. He said, do you trust me? And I was like, whoa. I was like, hello, God. (laughs) And um, I just had this moment of, just kind of like thinking about it and then being like, no, like I went through so much suffering and this is all your fault and you could have prevented this. And, you know, just kind of, I was really angry and I took it all out, you know, and I just kind of laid it out loud. I was mad at him and I told him that and not out loud, of course, (laughs) that would have been weird. The lady next to me probably would have been like, what are you talking about? (laughs) But I kind of just beat into him, but he didn't really do anything. He just kept asking. He said, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And eventually, you know, he chiseled away at my heart and I eventually told him, yes, like I could try, I could try to trust him. And that's when everything started changing. And that's what's kind of been bringing me here today. Wow. It made me think of, um, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. Yes. Kind of like that, the whole concept of you know, I and I think it's a really what your story really highlights is that faith is not um like a some sort of striving attempt, uh ascent, like uh something that we we strive and ascend to. It's rather a gift and God meets us where we're at, which yeah, um which is really true. beautiful. Thank That's you. cool. Thanks. That's really neat. So when you heard that voice, it was kind of just like was it more like a, like something audible or like just internal? It's kind of hard to explain, yeah. honestly. <laughs> it's like one of those things where it is audible, but it's like in your head. Like a thought, like a thought echoing in your head? Kind of, yeah. But mm-hmm. it's obviously not yours. Mm-hmm. It's the best way I can describe it is if like you have on AirPods or something and like you're maybe... I don't know how to explain it, but maybe like you had a <laughs> podcast on, but it's yeah. really, really silent. Okay. And then all of a sudden somebody starts talking and you're like, whoa, <laughs> like, oh yeah, <laughs> kind of like that. So it's audible, but nobody else can hear it. You mm-hmm. know, it's not coming from like anywhere. It's just in your head. Wow. That's really neat. Yeah. It's, it's kind of an odd experience. Obviously it's not exactly like that, but that's as best as I can describe it. Well, you know, it the story itself like it's 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 not gonna um yeah you're never gonna be able to recreate the the experience but at least you're giving us an idea of what was going on yeah and i think the the proof is also in the pudding of like your life and what 
what effect it has had that um, when you come from such a dark and fallen away place and then now it just seems evident that you have a lot of life in you and you. and maybe it's just because you're young and maybe I don't know you know <laughs> but uh, <laughs> something like that yeah no but um and and obviously part of it is like social media presence is not real life right but right but at the same time um you're a young person you're excited about god you're excited about faith and that's kind of shocking to see these days isn't it like you know it's just not something you see very often and i think because oftentimes it kind of comes off as forced with a lot of young people like i see a lot of like I don't go, I don't use TikTok, but like, you know, on Instagram, you'll come across like these um, young Christians where it's just, it just seems like they're just repeating things they've heard. And I don't think it's like, but there's something about you that, and you can take it as a compliment that I think you're genuine with your faith. I don't know what it is. There's something about it. And, um, and it's neat to see, like, to hear that you're honest, that like, I wasn't always like this, you know, I, I was in a dark place and it kind of gives more credibility to the story. It's like, wait, this isn't just you. This is God's doing something in you. Right. And I, I really like that. It's really cool. Thank you. I know exactly what you're talking about mm-hmm. too on TikTok. I was yeah. permanently banned on TikTok. So really? <laughs> yeah. I had a hundred thousand followers and, and then they banned me. <laughs> How'd they ban you? They basically just flagged a bunch of videos that were were like my animals and then, which my animals are so cute. They're adorable, but Why were they, they were flagged? literally just the stupidest TikToks and they flagged them and then they permanently deleted my account. Who? who? TikTok. I don't know who's ever in charge of that. I think it's some Chinese company. <laughs> yeah. It's pro- you know, <laughs> well, no, know. I'm kind of glad to be off of it. Because there was a whole story with that too, where I asked God, because I hated being on TikTok. It was awful for my mental health and in adoration. I asked God, I was like, Hey, you know, if there's like a specific app or anything that's like hindering me from getting closer to you, you can take it away. (laughs) And um, on my birthday, he took it away last year. So. Wow. Well, that's good then. Yeah. I've just never, I mean, I guess it's because it's not really my generation as much to be on TikTok. Although not necessarily true. There's a lot of people my age who are on TikTok. I just, I have enough distraction. I don't need any more. And TikTok's um, just the worst app ever. But <laughs> the thing is, is that everybody tries to do something for clout. And that's yeah. what I noticed with like those young, like uh, Protestant content creators. A lot of it is just for clout. It doesn't seem genuine. It yeah. just kind of feels like they're reading a script. Mm. Um, Nothing's actually their own. And like most of the time as much as like I completely support their faith because I'm glad they're a part of it yeah it just seems like they're on social media to get likes for it like they want to get something for it instead of just being Christian Mm -hmm. yeah and yeah and there's definitely a uh, and it's not true of all people but there's definitely a depth to um if you really take a tradition seriously then there can you can get into some real depth of it and i think this is one thing that i struggle with i i don't yes i grew up protestant and evangelical and charismatic pentecostal you name it but i will say i become more and more disillusioned with 
Protestant, Protestantism, especially evangelicalism, I think it's pretty much um, lost a lot of credibility, especially in the past few years. Yeah. But um, but a big thing is like formation, uh, spiritual discipline, uh, spiritual direction, and um, discipleship. There's a lot of churches that are really far removed from the great tradition, you know, of whether it's Catholicism or um, Eastern Orthodox. For example, I grew up, I, well, I originally grew up in a, um, Assemblies of God, which is a really pretty big um, denomina- charismatic denomination that started actually from big revival in the early 20th century, which is really cool. I mean, I think there's a lot of things I can appreciate about that. And, and to be honest, when my dad was going through his whole um, revival experience where he came to faith in a new way, it he almost considered um, going back to Catholicism um, because he had a priest who was involved with the charismatic movement, even within Catholicism. And that's the thing, like, believe it or not, I, I was was talking to my grandmother the other day, uh, not the other day, a couple months ago, and she was saying she was actually at a charismatic Catholic like revival event. Yeah. And and one of the priests prayed for her eyesight and and her eyesight was healed. Like she she was like in her 30s and she was losing her eyesight because she's getting older. Yeah. And the priest prayed for her. And, you know, so it's it's kind of interesting. Like, I don't want to draw um lines between like uh protestant the protestant uh charismatic movement and the catholic charismatic movement because i think charism charismatic ism is like uh you know the movement of the spirit and then miracles and whatnot and gifts the spirit and whatnot are transcend denominational lines i mean that's just christianity um but i will say that like i grew up mostly in a non-denominational church which she must sound so foreign that must be so weird thinking about that thinking, i think imagine being in a church that is that has no authority structure is not it's not um connected to any larger body it's right. very really the, the more i think about it the, it's very strange and it's not doesn't really follow the tradition of christianity for the past 2000 years for sure what was my point with that? Oh, well, basically, that's what I'm saying is like kind of disillusioned with um, because there's this lack of discipleship and formation. And I guess what you guys would call catechesis, right? Yeah. Catechism is kind of teaching um, and Protestantism or catechesis is mostly just the scriptures. But if yeah. only they were if only they were so simple if only it was that simple to understand the scriptures because i'm not an ancient jewish person or an ancient greek person you know and and that's got, kind of makes it difficult and and the more you realize that you know people who are the most prolific theologians and um are people who go back and study what what did other christians believe about what this meant you know and and ultimately that's what we all have to do and I think it's actually through that process of um of being like okay what did what did Athanasius think what did Irenaeus think what did Clement of Alexandria or Gregory of Nyssa or Augustine and then even um post schism you got 
Thomas Aquinas and whatnot. And what do they all believe? And, and it's interesting. Well, what's what's really interesting is the diversity of opinion on several different topics. Of course, you have the central things there. But what's interesting is it, it looks a lot different than what Protestantism has become, unfortunately. But yeah, um, formation and spiritual formation. But speaking of which, what was the next steps after you went from uh, that experience that day in church? Like, what, what were your next steps to get where you are now? Well, you know, it was a long and hard process, a lot of conviction, lots of, you know, you really have to shape the intellect before you can change your habits. So basically, you need to form your conscience. Um, because being in the world for so long, like there's so many things that I let slide or that I did, or that my friends have done that I was just like, didn't, it didn't really bother me in that moment. But then later on, I realized how messed up it really was. Um, and, you know, just having to kind of just form my conscience was very hard. It took a lot of purging. It took a lot of, you know, removing certain people from my life that I didn't think uh, I'd ever be able to, you know, live without, so to speak. Yeah. So basically I had to purge a lot of my friends out, purge a lot of sins and just things that I really struggled with after that, that took, you know, that probably took a good three months to kind of take those people out of my life. And I never would have expected I'd have to ever remove people from my life. I just thought that like, I'd be friends with them forever. Um, but then after that, the next step was, you know, starting my obligations again, which was going to mass every Sunday. And I had to go to confession. Um, cause in Catholicism, we, we do confession and, uh, so I did my general confession, which is when you're away from the Catholic church for a certain amount of years, the priest actually sits with you and goes over, um, everything with you and kind of just helps you process that. And it gives you penance and it, it's just a really healing experience, um, spiritually. And so then the next steps from there, I, you know, the whole ministry thing was an accident. It wasn't. <laughs> It wasn't planned, which I think is why it's been so successful is because every single day I don't have this, I guess, this idea that I'm like, today I'm going to make as much money as I possibly can off of Catholicism or today I'm going to talk about this and see how many views I get. It's never really been a, anything about that. It's always just kind of been about me sharing my story. And as I've gone through and like shared my story, people have resonated with it. You know, they've related to it and it's something that they, they see in themselves, you know, even if it's not the entirety of the story, they see themselves in little bits and pieces of my past or in the process of coming back in or while being in the faith and the struggles that I've gone through. I don't pretend to be somebody I'm not. I don't pretend to be this awesome influencer that's like pretty 24 seven and has like 50 friends and like, no, most people when I'm on social media, I don't have makeup on. I'm usually fairly, uh, you know, like most of my stuff that I try to do, I try to make it very, um, I guess personal, you know, I don't try to be like, Hey guys, welcome back to this. Like today I'm going to be showing you this great product from, um, you know, like I don't try to be that it's more like, 
hey guys, it's raining in Chicago. I have seasonal depression and I'm drinking hot coffee. <laughs> it's, it's definitely a little bit different from what I do see from other Catholic influencers, but I think a lot of them are starting to kind of come around, you know, and, and become more personable in a lot of their stuff. And so I'm a Catholic communicator and that all started on TikTok when I just kind of posted a really bad quality TikTok video about my rosary and like my church at the time and Chick-fil-A and it just kind of like took off and people really resonated with it I guess I think it was the Chick-fil-A um and after that like I just started gaining hundreds and hundreds of followers every day and then from there I branched off onto Instagram and from Instagram to YouTube and Facebook and the podcast that I have the Catholic's perspective and then um you know it's just been a journey but I think the difference is I didn't go into this looking to be anything I wasn't looking to be you know an influencer what my main idea was is that when I was coming back into my faith trying to learn whatever I could about it I didn't see any young adult Catholics on YouTube or Instagram or just anywhere, you know, talking about these topics or the struggles of being Christian in a secular world. And, you know, it really made me kind of feel alone. And it, it sort of sent me into this like, okay, well, I'm alone now. <laughs> like I have no community, no friends. Um, and I knew that there were probably other people in the world that kind of felt that way. Like they couldn't relate to anybody either because there was no young adults, you know, not that there's anything wrong with, you know, 50 year old dads, you know, on Catholic answers or anything like that, but I just couldn't relate to them. You know, I couldn't relate to Scott Hahn or any of these people. I'm like, okay, well you were raised like in the 1900s. So I'm just kidding. <laughs> the 50 year old dads and Catholic answers. That's perfect. I love that. Yeah. It just, didn't really make sense as to why like a 50 year old dad would resonate with like a 19 year old woman, you know? And so I decided to become that person for other people. When I realized that people really liked my message, I was like, oh, well, maybe this is my calling. Maybe this is something I'm meant to do is to share my own experiences so that other people who are in my same position know that they're not alone. Um, and that's kind of what kickstarted it and now we're incorporated we're working towards helping you know um, grow the ministry so that we can eventually give back and stuff we're just kind of in the beginning stages which is quite the struggle because in the beginning stages of your own business you know usually um it's quite a struggle financially so we're, we're getting there but it's 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 not been easy You posted something a couple of days ago, or maybe a couple of weeks ago, about um, being born for such a time as this. Yeah. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit, what that means to you as a young person who's in, uh, seems to have some sort of prophetic voice in a sense, you know, to yeah. your generation. No, for sure. So that quote um, actually comes from a saint, Saint Joan of Arc, and she's fantastic. Uh, if you guys ever look her up, she's great. Um, she's burned at the stake. So that's, yeah. Anyways. Um, but yeah, so for me, you know, I think my generation has, uh, maybe imposter syndrome for when they were, uh, born, you know, they're just like, I should have been born back in the twenties or the thirties or 
you know, something like that. Or now the new trend is wanting to go back to the early 2000s. And I'm like, why would you want that? You don't want to go back Britney then. Britney Spears, butterfly clips. It was 9-11. Like, no, yeah. you don't want to live in that time. I mean, maybe before that, because that was like peak of <laughs> everything, but <laughs> not during. <laughs> yeah, the 90s are back, apparently. That was 30 years ago, apparently. Mm. Yeah. What? Well, I mean, you know, 30 years ago was uh, 1993, early 90s, you know. Yeah, I missed the 90s. Yeah. I mean, I was bro- I was born in 1999, so I was born like right on the cusp, but yeah, I still you- had what people consider to be a 90s childhood. You miss you miss the 90s, those six months you were there. Oh, it was so nice. <laughs> just, no, just I know what you're saying. Uh, more like, yes, I was born in the 90s, but I really, most of my memory is of the early 2000s for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The early 2000s, <laughs> like the aesthetic, you know, was really great, but the actual early 2000s time was not great. And I think that's just something yeah. we have to keep in mind with every generation. Whenever we look back, it's always, um, it's always looking back in retrospect and 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 but we it's through rose-colored glasses like you could look back to any time and be like oh that was so great back then back when America was great you know like like a lot there's a lot of people like that you know like there was a time when America was great like well it depends on who you are yeah it was great for you you know but anyway (laughs) um yeah that's interesting the whole nostalgia piece Yeah, I've noticed that there's like a lot of identity crisis issues in my generation. I'm sure in all generations, but we specifically see it in my generation today because, you know, we were born in this weird time where, you know, technology is running rampant. We're trying to be somebody, but, you know, our mental health is dead and, you know, we're just we're just struggling. And so I see these people longing for a, a different time, you know, like the 1990s, the 1980s. And I'm just like, even going back to like the 1800s and I'm like, okay, well, I want indoor plumbing. Um, (laughs) But that's just something I've noticed. And so it's important for me to remind, especially the younger generation who's coming into a really messed up world that they were created for a time such as this, you know, because God does not have accidents. You know, we don't call it a coincidence. We call it a God incidence. And so it's one of those things where he's perfect in his planning and his timing and he's outside of space and time. So he knows everything. And, you know, he created people for this time. And the best thing we can do is be open to his will for whatever that might be. You know, it might not even be something in, um, you know, specifically in religion, you know, people always think like, oh, well, if God's calling me to something, it's going to be like a religious order or something that has to do with Catholicism or Christianity as a whole, like something like that. But you can make a complete change. You know, God could be creating you for this time to be a good doctor that's lacking right now. There are so many bad doctors these days, or maybe it's like he's creating you to help others. You know, I just don't think that there's a you know, a a cookie cutter way of going about it. Everyone's like, oh, I was born in the wrong generation. I'm like, no, no, you weren't. But I I understand the imposter syndrome you probably have because, you know, I was raised in the nineties. And so I kind of, well, not really, but you know, had a nineties childhood. And so for me, I feel out of place with 90% of Gen Z. I'm like, I don't know what Pokemon is like I do, but 
you know, like I don't care about Game Boy and Pokemon or any of that stuff. And they're learning things where I'm like, this is, am I old? (laughs) But I'm not, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's just interesting. But for me specifically, like I didn't know what my purpose was. And obviously everyone has um, what's called a, oh my gosh, what's it called? It's universal vocation, which is to know, love and serve God. Everybody has that vocation, Um, whether you accept it or not, everybody's called to do that. And so when I embraced that vocation, all my other vocations kind of fell into place. Yeah. I mean, it's sometimes it's just so simple as the words of Jesus, isn't it? Seek the kingdom of God first and all the other things will fall into place. That's at least how I've always interpreted it. But I'm sure it means something more nuanced than that. But that that interpretation works, you know, it's just like seek because obviously Joan of Arc got um, burned at the stake. (laughs) You know, it doesn't mean seek God and he's going to make your life easy and good like all all good right a lot of the saints went through a lot of suffering you know Mm -hmm. and um but some didn't you know it's not and also saints it's not just like there's canonized saints so people we officially recognize as saints but anyone who makes it to heaven is a saint you know and so yeah there are some people who you know lived a very quiet decent life was very devout to god and died peacefully and then there's saints like Joan of Arc that get burned mm. at the stake. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to do more research into her. She's very interesting. One I, one um, saint that I've been really interested in lately is um, Julian of Norwich. Oh. Really fascinating. I haven't have ever... heard of her. Um, really? Her name sounds familiar, but I haven't like done any research. I want to say 13th or 14th century. Yeah. She, hmm. she had some really wild mystical experiences where that um she was on her deathbed this is really really fascinating she was on her deathbed and with the plague and the priest gave in to give her like final rites like yeah you're gonna die so like he's holding the cross over her head and she's staring into the cross and then she fades away Mm. and as she fades away she goes into like uh uh what's that word ecstasy no what's the word um I know the words. Oh, it's a not a trance, but like a a vision. Like she, oh, okay. she has a vision, and she's at the crucifixion, and and she sees oh, wow. Jesus, and she sees the blood, um, coming down from the cross, and and she has, um, this revelation of divine love, and that's where I'm sure you've heard all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Yeah, that was Julian of Norwich, but oh, yeah, cool. there's there's a lot of really cool saints out there. That's another thing that's like I feel like it's been really lacking in my life. I I was actually often discouraged from looking into saints or reading what they had to say because of the whole concept of sola scriptura, which right. <clears throat> sola scriptura really doesn't mean ignore church history. That's never what Luther meant. What he meant was as believing the scripture as like a final as a final authority, you know, and and a lot of people misinterpret it meaning like only the bible that's i mean nobody can live that way because well what does the bible mean you have to rely on the the understanding of someone before you so it's always um, interesting you know, to me when somebody brings up the argument too because you know they'll say certain things you know uh where it's just like oh this or that and i'm like well 
you know, you know, the Trinity is not in the Bible, but you still believe in the Trinity, right? You know, the word isn't in there. So, I mean, neither is the word Protestant and yet, or evangelicalism or Baptist or anything like that. I mean, yeah. John the Baptist, sure, but not Baptists, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. No, no, you're right. And so, yeah, I mean, a big part of my deconstruction process has been understanding and looking back, actually, it's it's been really um, a renaissance, a renaissance of of the Christian faith and tradition looking back, what did, what did people say about the faith? What did people believe about the faith? Because when I was growing up, I thought the tradition I grew up with, and which wasn't really a tradition, it was just a very um, small expression of Christianity, which like not even all Protestants are charismatic or Pentecostal. Right. Um, it takes a lot of humility, I, though, to be able to yeah. do that, because there's a lot of spiritual pride. Catholics struggle mm-hmm. with it, too, where I've really been trying to... Uh, just be conversational with people who aren't Catholic because we get a lot of bad rap because people don't let us talk. They just spout stuff out. Assume. Us. Yeah. I actually wanted to talk about that. What are what are some like big assumptions that a lot of people think uh make about what Catholics believe? Yeah, there's a lot. Um <laughs> one of them is that we worship Mary. And uh I guess in a way it kind of makes sense if a Protestant believes that, because to them, in a sense, worship for them is like music and like songs and praise and prayer right but for catholics uh worship is the mass right it's mm-hmm. it's and the mass is only for god and god alone veneration which is what we believe is prayers yeah. and you know that that is reserved for our lady and the saints mm-hmm. because they are in um because god created them so when you venerate them you're venerating god because let's say you're a painter right if a painter paints a painting and you go, that is the ugliest painting I've ever seen in my life. Well, that's a reflection on the artist, right? So when we say like, um, we're ugly or something, we're saying that God did a bad job basically. Um, so in that sense, you know, when we venerate the saints and honor them, we're honoring God and his creation. Um, and we just, you know, ask for their intercession as though we ask a friend to pray for us on earth. Um, but the saints are actually in heaven. So they actually have more leeway, you know, than we do here. Um, but that's one. Uh, the second one, um, there's a couple, but that's I was just going like to say, you know, there's something really beautiful about that. Um, the venerating, the veneration of saints, of, of people who are clearly have been formed into the image of Christ. And that's not the work of their own. It's it's the work of God. And that's a miracle, you know, and it's something that we should celebrate. And also you have the whole concept of the Imago Dei, right? Like the image of God. And this is a very Jewish concept too of um, images. And that's why it says, that's why the second commandment is don't make any graven images uh, of God because um, that word for image was the same word that's used to talk about the image of God in humanity. So human God is, is infused throughout humanity. And that's something like, that's a really, like that changes. um, It's like probably one of the, it's probably like the whole foundation of Catholic social teaching, right? Is that the image of God is in all people. Therefore treat every person like they're God, you know, like, like you're, like you're serving God. And that goes back to Matthew 25 too. Like, um that sometimes we we get so separationist that it's like 
there's only God in this bubble. And then like, mm -hmm. we're so far away on the other side. It's like, well, not really. Yeah, I think it's truly, uh, it, it's life changing when you start seeing Jesus in other people. Because I think a lot of times, especially today, there's this stigma. And we are constantly being like, well, this person doesn't have this. So I don't want to be friends with them because they're poor or this or that. Now, I'm not saying to get into like toxic relationships or anything, but you know, seeing Christ in everybody in some way or knowing that somebody needs Christ in their life is life-changing. Just having that perspective of not like, oh, this person hurt me, but this person needs God. You know, there's a completely different way of going about our thinking. And I think today we just have this stigma of how people should act. And, you know, um, it's all relativistic. Relativism is really big in the culture today where it's like my truth, me, me, me. It's very selfish. It's what I get out of the relationship. It's what I want. I don't care what you want. If you don't want what I want, then, you know, we can't be together. And it's interesting because that's for themselves. Right. But then if their significant others, like, does the same behavior they're just like um no like you need to do what I want so there's like this whole thing and you know when our mindset changes to be giving instead of taking that's I think when the culture will really kind of turn around yeah absolutely you're right um I was thinking obviously a big one and this is one that I've really had to grapple with um in the past few years and something that i've talked to quite quite a bit with um different orthodox folks because the orthodox have a very similar view to um roman catholics where they believe in the real presence of jesus in the eucharist and growing up to me it was always like this is just a symbol um and the weird thing too and i really i can't get a good answer on this from anybody most and a lot of protestant evangelical churches we do communion once a month. So 12 times a year. <laughs> yeah. Now, did you know that? I mean, I kind of figured, but I know I only had, I had Protestant <clears throat> friends when I was, you know, away from my faith and they did it every week. Um, but it was like a Ritz mm. cracker and like grape juice. Interesting. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I won't say this of all Protestant churches because because I not all Protestant, especially in high church, like Anglican, Episcopal, right, um, Lutheran, they because Luther didn't really change. The only thing Luther really changed was um not relying on papal authority rather and rather turning to the scripture as as authority, but they still kept the episcopate of their own, you know, they still had the mass in a very similar way he st he still believed in transubstantiation as a um even luther the protestant you know the protestant so there's a lot of things about protestantism today that don't even look like what luther believed you know and and it's because it's kind of changed but in many and every every evangelical church i've ever been to growing up it's been um once a month and i'm but then you come to across scripture passages where Jesus says, as often as you gather, do this in remembrance of me. Um, so yeah, I see where they get the remembrance of me, but to the Jewish understanding, remembrance didn't mean just intellectually remembering. Remembrance means remembering it, bringing, bringing 
making him present again, making a presence again, which it had a deeper meaning than just intellectually remembering on a propositional level. Right. So that's one conviction of mine in the past few years. Like, I feel like I'm really missing out by not having communion um, every time we gather for church every Sunday, you know, and, and so I, but what are some um, the misconceptions that people, uh, Protestants often have about Catholic Eucharist? Um, the main one is usually that it's a symbol, like you stated. And uh, yeah, it, like, that's just the main one. And I'm like, well, you know, you guys take the Bible so literally in other places, but then <laughs> when you actually need to take it literally, you don't. When Jesus um, says in John, this is my body and my blood, you have to eat it, you know, you have to drink this in order to have eternal life. I mean, it wasn't an option. I, it was. I don't know. I, I don't know how you get around it. Sure, maybe. But then you're just picking and choosing what's symbolic, what's what's real, what's literal, what's not literal. And it, we call that and it, cherry picking. Yeah, it's called cherry. Of course, it's called cherry picking. Yeah, because um, you have to do that. You you can't. I'm I'm completely disillusioned with the idea that I can just have we can just have the Bible and just read it and yeah. understand what Christian what it means to be a Christian is we need the tradition. We need we need a, the church. We need uh, some sort of authority structure to lean upon. Right. Um, and that's the biggest thing is like, you know, uh, we have the three pillars of the church, which is, you know, church authority. And then we have traditions and mm -hmm. then we have the Bible. And <laughs> so it's on the three pillars. So it's sturdy. Mm -hmm. But if you're only on one, well, you can't sit on that chair. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little wobbly. It's a good I mean, analogy. You have a little bit of, you have a little bit of truth. Sure. Mm -hmm. But uh not yeah. the completeness of it mm -hmm. yes so obviously the veneration of mary and and oftentimes you'll hear people say oh you guys believe in re-sacrificing jesus every week it's like no jesus was sacrificed once for all but there's i mean ultimately it comes down to like the over scholasticism <clears throat> where it's like um just thinking about things too scholastically, like as if that we're in, we're in a university. It's like no, this is mystery. Ultimately, it's like it's it's a mystery. It's a miracle of of bringing, um, of bringing, um, making Jesus present again. Um, obviously, the big difference I think that I've noted between like Orthodox view of it and Roman Catholic view of it is that the transubstantiation is like more about like Roman Catholics see it more as like the actual like it's physically it's physical substance has changed whereas when I speak to orthodox people they're like we say it's the true body and the true blood of Christ meaning whatever whatever that means but ultimately it's mystery they don't think about it as like more scholastically as like it's physically or scientifically it's changed biologically or whatever you know is is there more nuance in that um within the transubstantiation doctrine and i know this is really deep deep <laughs> stuff but i don't know if like if this is something you've ever grappled with like wait that looks like bread that still looks like wine is like do they believe it's like actual blood cells and actual like skin cells you know what i mean and this I mean, is a weird a miracle. question. That's the main thing. Yeah. Catholics. Like we do know it's like a miracle. We can't explain yeah. it. Uh -huh. 
Um, that's the biggest part, but we believe it's the body, blood, soul, and divinity because um, there have been times where miracles have happened, where the actual host has turned into a, a base a heart tissue. Um, and there have been miracles like that. And so it is really a mystery. Um, I don't know too many Catholics that really try to scholasticize it a whole bunch, mm -hmm. at least in my own personal experience. I'm sure there's scholars and stuff that try to make sense mm -hmm. out of it because people got to do something, you know, but yeah. um, I definitely know that we believe it's the body, blood, soul, and divinity, uh, but the substance still, the substance is changed, but the look of it still, you know, it still looks like mm. bread and wine. Yeah. I mean, and I wonder if it's often just like splitting hairs and whatnot. And that's what we tend to do where it's easier just to say mystery, you know? Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> ultimately, you know, we're not meant to understand everything of God. Um, we're not supposed, we're not meant to completely grasp things that are beyond our comprehension, right. which I think is fair. But yeah. yeah. Not until we see the beatific vision and then we'll yeah, understand certainly. and we're going to be like, oh, so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Are there any other misconceptions? I know those are probably the big ones, Mary and, yeah, and the Eucharist. Those are the top ones. I mean, I yeah. could go into tiny, tiny ones, mm -hmm. but those are usually yeah. the biggest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have the, it's really interesting the the development of um, the purgatory, um, afterlife purgatory concept. What is that? You know, what is, I don't think I've ever actually had anybody explain to me what, what it actually means. Like what, what is purgatory? So purgatory is a purification process. Um, it's God's grace because if we were to die, let's say, um, you know, we die and we have venial sins on our soul. Well, nothing perfect, nothing unperfect will enter heaven, Jesus says. And we cannot be perfect unless we go through a purification process because there will still be residual sins where we need um, some sort of purification, just kind of chiseling away to make it um, so that we can be in the beatific vision. Because if we're still, if we have any kind of sin on our soul at all, if we're, because being perfect means being sinless, right? Not having any sin on our souls. And so if we are in the beatific vision, which is the vision of God, right? If we are before God and he, we won't be able to tolerate that. And that's why hell exists because hell is the um, separation of God. God does not exist in hell. And that in itself is also merciful because it would be torture for our souls to be in the presence of God with sins on our souls, knowing what we've done, because we'll have, we'll be enlightened and we'll know everything at that point. And so purgatory is this, um, this wonderful grace from God where it's a purification process. Everyone who's in purgatory will go to heaven. Um, it's not like, eh, this is the testing phase. It's a purification model. model. It's a purification place where um, basically if we have any sins or any vices or anything that need to be cut out because mortal sins separate us completely from God. And that's why people go to hell. Um, but venial sins, they just kind of weaken our relationship with God. They don't actually sever it completely. So if you die with venial sins, um, then it's a, a purgatory type experience, which is just a purification process. If that makes sense. It's a lot deeper than that, but <laughs> I know we don't have a ton of time. So no, no, that's definitely helpful. You know, and 
it's it's like another one of those things where it's like we're trying to grapple things that we really can't fully understand you know what i mean like even when we talk about heaven and hell like we can't really understand those things in a scholastic manner because ultimately they're an experience right it's like right and they're also an experience that i have that are that are to be experienced you know i don't know if it's disembodied or i mean and that that's the interesting thing is too like so often our our talk about heaven and hell is is kind of like a disembodied experience but but then you have the whole thing about resurrection so it's like it kind of gets confusing um and i think that kind of gets into like there's this pre-resurrection and judgment day existence after death right that's like kind of a disembodied spiritual existence but then there's resurrection and judgment you know and that's kind of like the weird thing where it's like there's judgments that are happening now um for people who have died but aren't um resurrected yet but then everybody's going to be resurrected and and receive their rewards their recompense for their sins and whatnot so it is a really interesting thing it is it's confusing though (laughs) and i often wonder if like a lot of these doctrines have kind of like developed because we're trying to make sense of these things that we they're really above our above our comprehension like especially purgatory it's like it's such an interesting concept and it almost seems like is it really necessarily like like place or are any of these things like places you know like physical places or is it like a process that just happens you know that and it's hard to explain it too Mm -hmm. because we have the intellectualness of intellectualness we have our minds are you know we can't understand certain things so we try to rationalize stuff by putting it into terms we understand Mm -hmm. which honestly might not be completely correct and we won't know until we die you know Mm -hmm. but we try to have a a good idea of what it yeah. is so yeah i was um curious about latin mass this is something that i've never experienced i'd actually like to visit a latin mass i think it'd be really cool um whenever i've been to the catholic church it's usually for weddings and funerals but when i have been even for other services too easter service or whatnot it's it's been under the nova ordis ordis nova nova ordis right um the new novus ordo yeah novus ordo yeah latin you know <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, so you have the whole Vatican II thing. And I'm really interested about, like, the dynamic. I I find it interesting, you know, recently Pope Francis came out and he was, like, basically discouraging people from Latin Mass. And it was just, like, a really interesting thing to do. And and it's it's interesting to hear a lot of people kind of complaining and be like, well, should we listen to him? Should we not listen to him? You know, it's kind of this weird um, tension. But... But I, I guess before we get into that, what is Latin Mass? What What is that experience like? The Latin Mass is probably one of the oldest forms of the Mass that you can ever get. You know, um, that was pre-Vatican II, and they've been celebrating that Mass for over 2,000 years. Um, and that's as close to the original you'll probably ever get. You know, um, it's very beautiful. It's very reverent. A lot of incense. Lots of, um, it's, it's just so beautiful. and. I absolutely love going. You don't need to understand Latin to go. And overall, the experience spiritually is so much in so much more enriching. You know, you you really feel like you're almost a part of heaven in a sense. You know, it's it's something that 
I've never been able to experience at any other um, mass, even at Eastern liturgies, like uh, the Maronites or the Byzantines, you know, in Catholicism, it's like, they have beautiful liturgies, but um, there's a spiritualness, there's like a certain spiritual enrichment that you get at the Latin mass that you just don't really get anywhere else. That's a similar experience that I've had when I visited Eastern Orthodox Church, and they have the Divine Liturgy, which was um, kind of instituted by John Christossom, which, which he's yeah. he's cool with the Catholic Church, right, John Christossom? Yeah, he's a saint in the Catholic yeah. Church. Yeah. Well, what what's interesting is he he came up with this Divine Liturgy, but I think it was pre schism. So I was curious: is is there aspects of the Divine Liturgy that's still in Latin Mass and whatnot? Yeah, it's um. I mean, it's, it's not really like a part cause it's, they're kind of different in the structuring mm -hmm. of it, but, um, yeah, they're, they're a little bit different. Yeah. 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 So when you, I mean, I think the obvious hurdle that a lot of people probably have is that it's all in Latin, right? Is there any English? There's English for the homily, and usually they'll do the readings again in English. Oh, okay. Um, but for the most part, it's it's all in Latin, and I really like the low mass because it's really quiet and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's it's just it's a really really fun experience, um, and it's a very prayerful experience. I really enjoy it. So it's it's been really good, and um, I've been enjoying it. And I'm sorry too. I have to go in like five minutes. Okay, that's okay. I was curious just to hear. Um, um, about that that interesting tension of we have a you have a pope who kind of like is trying to move Catholicism in, in um I don't I don't want to say progressive just um direction but I think he wants to be stick true to the Nova Ordis or Norvo Ordis how do you say <laughs> Novus Ordo Novus, Novus Ordo um basically Vatican II right and and I will say this quickly that I don't think I think a lot of people misinterpret Vatican II to think like oh they're to completely changing Christ uh, changing Catholicism. That's not the case if you actually go back to Vatican II. It's not they're not. Yeah, um, well, there's been a lot of people should read the Vatican II documents for themselves. There's been a lot of misinterpretation and and further you know um, stretching and whatnot. So yes, um, now we have. But during Vatican II, you had like the changing of the altar. You had now um, having services in their vernacular. And I was curious, like, if you could speak to that tension that seems to exist between, um, <clears throat> you know, the Pope who's kind of pushing in one direction, but then there's kind of more traditional Catholics who want to stay put in one direction or kind of go back. Like, what, what does that look like? How do, you, how do people navigate that? I mean, honestly, it's a big division in the church and it's only getting wider the more that, um, you know, they try to restrict the TLM and it's just, it's really unfortunate, but I think it just comes down to misunderstandings on both sides and um, people just, it's, it's a, like I said in the beginning, it's kind of like this sense of spiritual pride that people have. It's this sense of, well, this is better or this is better, you know, and in some cases, there's a lot of forms of Eucharistic abuse and abuse that happens, you know, at the Novus Ordo that don't happen at the TLM, like there's stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's just one of those things that everybody's just causing division and it's all coming down to pride. So you think it's not really, 
it's it's not as big of a problem as a problem as it seems they're trying to blow it out of proportion to kind mm -hmm. of like um set us against each other because you know when mm -hmm. you're divided you're easily conquered yeah that's true divide and conquer yeah i mean but you have you know what's different what i mean something that i struggle with with roman catholicism and, and it's one thing that reason why i think i wouldn't go in that direction is the whole like singularity of the pope papal authority and whatnot and um or papal infallibility um and it's just like interesting to see that tension of like well the the leader is going in this direction uh what are you supposed to do about that you know and um <laughs> well papal infallibility it only happens once a year when he's reading um uh, documents other than that it's usually just personal opinion and we can choose to follow it or not but there is something that's called blind, blind obedience and that is when people just follow him no matter what if he said trample a cruc crucifix somebody probably would and it's that you don't want to do that like that's not papal infallibility um he's only infallible when he's speaking on um the name's slipping me at the moment but there's a document which is already like proven hmm. to be scriptural and traditional and stuff um but people usually think papal <clears throat> infallibility means like he's always infallible and oh stuff. interesting oh wow i've never really understood it that way so yeah. that i mean it's helpful then yeah. so it, it's not as like hard of a hard and fast rule it's there's kind of more leeway right and oh okay that's really cool we've had really bad popes in the past so trust me <laughs> yeah <laughs> well that's for sure um anyway Thanks so much for fielding some questions and sharing yeah. your story, Amber. Um, yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate absolutely. it. Absolutely. No, totally. It's been a great conversation. Um, if if anybody wants to, you can follow her on Instagram uh, at what is it? Religious hippie. The religious hippie. Yeah. The religious hippie. Yeah. Um, yeah. And do you have a website or anything? Yeah, thereligioushippie.com. You can. Thereligioushippie.com. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time. Have a great evening. Thank you so much. Lord, Lord, the nature of your wrath It's not an easy path But I'm willing to trust Though I'm dying in the dust